Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to John 17. We'll be looking at that prayer that Jesus just prayed. And uh, while you're opening your Bibles to John 17, if you're new to Christ Church, my name's Mark, and I'm one of the uh, ministers here on staff, and we're glad that you're with us. Circle discipleship on your outline. Uh, discipleship is the theme of this morning as Jesus depicts for us what the life of a disciple will look like on this last night of his earthly life here. It's still Thursday evening. This is the fifth week of talking through what Thursday looked like in the last week of Jesus' life. They had entered the upper room and Jesus had washed their feet, if you remember several weeks ago, because no one would lower themselves to serve the others. Jesus lowered himself and washed their feet. And then he instituted the Lord's Supper uh, within the midst of the Passover meal. He took a a glass of wine and some unleavened bread and he added to the Passover by using himself as an illustration with the body and blood. And uh, he challenged them that whenever they gathered and would break bread and have a glass of wine, that they might remember what he did. And we talked about what that means to us today. Jesus told them he was leaving, but he encouraged them that because of who he was, he would not leave them alone. And then he told them that he was the vine and we're the branches and we're to rely on him and to build our life in him and to find our strength and, and all of our resources in that reliance. And then he told them not to be discouraged because he was going to be sending the Holy Counselor. And this guest would live with us and would guide us and lead us. And all of this took place on that very eventful Thursday night. And then they left that upper room. And as they were uh, leaving from uh, Jerusalem to go through the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was nearby where Jesus often went uh, to be alone and to spend time with the Lord, uh, it was in that moment that Jesus prayed, 17.1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Those four words, the time has come, brings context to who Jesus was, to what would take place that night, and ultimately to every one of us who believes he's the Son of God. Those four simple words, the time has come. It would give a context for his purpose. It would share with every one of us who he was and why he was here. And he makes it so clearly. I was always raised, I don't know if you were, When it says Jesus prayed, I was always taught that you bowed your head, closed your eyes, and folded your hands. Could shake your head if that's the way you were raised to pray. Do you know that's not biblical? Some of you are like, what? My mother's not biblical? Let me explain why. I believe we bow our heads, close our eyes, and fold our hands because some Sunday school teacher realized if she actually closed her eyes in a group full of boys, someone was going to get hurt. Does that make sense? So the only way to keep everyone behaving was if you closed your eyes and kept your hands to yourself, you could focus. There's nothing wrong with it, except biblically. You will seldom find that the posture of prayer was anything else but hands raised and eyes toward heaven. Look at verse 1 again and see if you don't see what I see. He looked toward heaven and prayed. It wasn't this somber, quiet prayer moment. When someone was speaking to God, it's like I was taught as a young man, you shake a person's hand, you look directly in their eyes, and you tell them who you are. And when you would look at God, it was the same posture. Lord, I bring nothing except I come to you. And Jesus prayed and he said to his father, the time has come. Jesus' prayer that night is focused on three distinct groups. Let's look at the first one. He prayed that the time has come for the son. He opens by expressing his relationship with God. And he, again, reading verse one. And after he said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Jesus lived... From the time he was a young boy with a running clock, he knew that there was a moment in his life where 
where God's plan for him, where that moment where God intersected earth through his life would be greater than the virgin birth, it would be at the crucifixion. And he knew that his death for all mankind was coming and the clock was running. When he was a young man, he was about the age of 12, we estimate, he was in the temple at one of the great feasts and his family had caravaned home and realized that he hadn't jumped in anyone's caravan. And they went back and they said, why did you not come back with us? You had us scared. And Jesus said, don't you know I'm about my father's business? The clock was running. And even at the young age of 12, Jesus knew I got work to do and work is not this stuff. Work is what I'm doing right here. And multiple times in the New Testament, there would be a moment where someone would ask Jesus to display his power, and his response was, the time is not now. At at the wedding in Cana, where he turned water into wine, and Mary came to him and said, can't you help out? You are God. And Jesus said to her in chapter 2, verse 4, my time has not yet, yet come. Clock was ticking. It just hadn't rung yet. And then when his brothers urged him to go to Jerusalem during one of the great festivals, declare he was the Messiah and begin reigning, Jesus said to them in John 7, the right time has not yet come. But did you hear what he said that Thursday night? The time has come. It rang. And it was time for Jesus to step up. It's game time. He knew that this was the fulfillment of what God said to the serpent in Genesis 3 in the fall in the garden. When he said... And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus knew that the moment of the venomous bite of the serpent was about to take place. And he was about to get stung. He said, Father, the time has come. Verse 2. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that, you, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There is an immense amount of theology in verses 2 and 3. In the study of God and God's purposes. I want to be brief, but I want you to spend some time this week, if you're looking for a place to, to marinate in Scripture, then I encourage you to spend some time in John 17, especially the first five verses about Jesus. Jesus says something very powerful in verse 2. He says that he has been empowered by God to restore life. <clears throat> and he, retur- he refers to that as eternal life. Now, I'm going to say something that is, I think in this room, no one's going to question it. But outside of these walls, everyone's questioning it. All authority belongs to Jesus and no one else. Which means Jesus gets to say things that none of us can say because we can't back it up. In a world that says that there are more ways to heaven than just through Jesus, Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. He says, all authority is given to me to create life. Nobody else can do that. People can steer life, can instruct in life, but only one person gives it, and that's Jesus. So I'm going to ask you, let me give you a little quiz here. Okay, now it's not hard. Feel free to answer. Who has all authority? Do the elders have authority? Does the senior minister have authority? God forbid. That would be horrible for all of you. No, it's not the rulers of the church. It's not politicians. It's not presidents, kings, and queens. The only one who has any legitimate authority is Jesus. And he said, I came to bring the life that you gave me authority to bring. So when someone questions whether you're being obstinate to say there's only one way to heaven, ask me who has real authority and I'll answer your question. 
Because he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And none of us hold that. The elders of the church are to protect the authority of Jesus and not to pr- their own authority. And when you live under that, you're living well. Listen to what John records Jesus saying. <clears throat> Excuse me. In chapter 1, verse 4, John says this about Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Life. In John 3, Jesus is quoted as saying, The Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have what, church? And in John 4, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to what, church? The world doesn't want me to say this, and they don't want you to believe this, but we must believe it. All authority belongs to Jesus Christ, and what he gives us will last forever, and what he doesn't give us, we don't need. It's that clean and simple. There's a lot of theology in those two verses. The next thing he says in verse 3 is that he tells us what eternal life is like. He says that this is eternal life, that you may, they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent. I, I want to be really clear on this. Because it's troubling when I talk to Christians about why they think they're going to go to heaven instead of why they aren't realizing heaven now. And when we talk about it, what they'll tell me is this, my sins have been forgiven and thus I have eternal life. That's not Jesus' definition of eternal life. If your Christianity is premised on a moment in time that happened 30 years ago, you're not living, you're dying. Jesus said eternal life is when you know the Father through the Son. When you're adopted into the family and you're living and walking by faith. If my Christianity is premised on a September day in 1974 when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I have sadly missed the greatest point of being a Christian. To walk every day in the life and light of Christ. Jesus said only I can give eternal life and eternal life is when I reveal the Father to you. So church, it's not about sin management. It's about living in the richness of a relationship with Jesus Christ every moment, every day. Verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Uh, I don't like to reveal this to people, but I have a deep sentimental side inside of me. I know. Some people that have had me in class before, students would go, really? I do. Deep down inside, I have a soul. I just hide it well. This is one of those passages that I might define as sweet. And I think it's rather beautiful. It's kind of touching, to be honest with you, in the midst of this. And I don't want to keep embellishing on that. Let me explain why. Of all the things Jesus could have asked his father for that night, remember, the time has come. And he knew what the prophets said would happen to the Messiah. He'd read the scriptures and he'd realized that was, it was going to happen to him. And in that moment, of all the things Jesus could have prayed for, he could have prayed that the pain would have been lessened. He could have prayed that, the, that the, the ones that were crucifying him wouldn't have been so brutal. But he didn't pray that. He was never selfish a moment. What he prayed for was that he could come home. Did you hear what he said? God, when I'm done, can I come back to the glory we had before all of this? I don't know about you, that's a sweet moment in Scripture. That's the humanity of Jesus. Where he said, God, I just want to come home. He was willing to pay the brutal price. And all he wanted when life was over was to be with his Father. And if you want a great definition of a life well lived, we just heard it. 
to suffer through whatever God allows us to suffer through with the ultimate goal of what? Going home and being with God in perfect peace. Back in John 12, several weeks ago, Jesus said these words, For this very reason I came to this hour, Father, glorify your name. So he prayed that he would be faithful. He knew it was his time, and he was willing. Second thing, the time had come for those disciples. It really shouldn't surprise me, although I noted it, that the largest portion of his prayer wasn't for himself, it was for other people. That seems a lot like Jesus. Verse 6, I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. For they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Why would Jesus pray such elaborate words and blessing on these 11 men? Because he knew what was coming their way. He knew that suffering was inevitable. He knew that they would witness the brutality of the cross. He knew that he would, they would see that God did not step in and stop it. And he knew that under humiliation and great temptation, they would be tested every day of their lives. And if you want to know what that looks like, read the book of Acts. And you'll see a group of men who had to endure all the shame and suffering that Jesus did because they believed in him. He knew that they were obedient. He knew that obedience draws a contrast with the world. And he knew that they would suffer much. He knew that they would be tempted to quit. He knew that that night they would fail him. But later, by the power of this holy guide, this guest that he would send, that they would rule and reign and establish his church. So he prayed. And aren't we grateful that his prayers were answered? That the disciples did the work that they were to do so that we can live well. Verse 10, Jesus said, All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. It's an interesting verse. Jesus said, my disciples are already have brought me glory on earth by their obedience and their trust. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Please don't miss verse 11. In the midst of trying to cover this expansive prayer, please don't miss the beauty in verse 11. When Jesus said, by my name, remember the authority You might have wondered why I spent five minutes of your life reminding us that all authority belongs to him. And any moment that we give him glory, we live under his authority. But he said in my name. How many times in the New Testament do you read Paul saying, it's by the name of Jesus people are saved. By no other name can you be saved. It's not just saying the name of Jesus. More people say the name of Jesus in the most offensive derogatory terms, like he was just a nobody instead of understanding the power. Because when you see what the early church did, whenever the name of Jesus was spoken, people whose legs did not work, they started working. People who had never seen, saw. Who had never heard, they, or could never hear, they, they heard. People who had never been able to speak, spoke. People that were in addiction and brokenness were raised in freedom. The name of Jesus has changed this world and it always will. And Jesus said, I get, they gave me the name But God, you gave it its power. That's why we preach the name of Jesus. That's why nothing is more important. Not saying Jesus, but living the life he called us to. And he thanked God that we could do that. 
Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He says, I know they're going to be under attack and I know it's going to be difficult and I know they're going to be stressed and I know that that their lives are going to be at risk and I know right now they're scared, but you're going to give them boldness and power and authority. And he said, I pray that they have joy. That's funny. On a night that Jesus would be brutalized, he didn't ask that we would be happy. My wife said to me several, well, maybe a month or two back, she said, are you ever happy? I was not born with the happy gene. Those of you that have it, thank God for it. I missed it somehow. I laughed at it. I go, you know what? I'm really not a happy person. I'm either content or discontent. It's a pretty stable mix. I either like the way things are or I don't. I'm looking. Why are wives looking at their husbands right now? Maybe I helped explain your marriage. (laughs) But I'm really not a happy guy. I mean, I find joy. But when I've had joy, I realize the difference between happiness and joy. And you do too, right? Happiness is based on whether I have what I want. Joy seems to show up when I don't have anything I want. And I still realize I'm loved and I'm cared for and God's providing. Amen? So if you're living to have a happy life or you're praying that your kids have a happy life, stop it. It's not biblical. Pray that they have joy in the midst of trials and strength to endure and joy when life stinks. And then you'll have prayed what Jesus prayed because he wanted them to have joy. Verse 14 I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Have you noticed that when the word of God becomes a part of our lives, and I don't mean just acknowledging it, when you enact the word of God, the world won't get you. And now the world wants to make fun of you and write you off, and and they want to say that you're just weird, and in fact, not only you're weird, you're corrupt, and that you have all of these issues and you hate Now, Jesus said, when the word gets inside of you, it will make you so different that the world who does not accept nonconformists will try to silence your voice. Because he said, I wasn't of the world and I didn't fit in either. And if you believe my words, you won't either. Because our world demands conformity. And we're told not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Listen, I'm not trying to be chicken little. But if you're not picking up from the world we live in that what I'm saying here today very soon isn't going to be acceptable anywhere, I think you're rudely mistaken. And the churches are going to get smaller because some of us are finally going to have to stand up and say, the truth is the truth whether we like it or not. And it's going to thin out the herd. Let the word be the word because it's going to be the difference between our belief and our doubt. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Who uses the word sanctified but Jesus? I never hear that word on the street. Sometimes I don't even hear it in the church. What does sanctification mean? Well, I'm going to give you a story from my life because I know that's what you want to hear and hopefully explain it. When I was a kid, I used to get splinters. A broken baseball bat that we'd tack together with a couple of nails or running my fence along a, or my hand along a fence post and I'd get a splinter. And I hated 
when I couldn't get it out myself because even if I told my mom, she would call my dad. And my dad would whip out his nasty pocket knife. And then every now and then he'd see that it was really deep and my dad would sanctify a sewing needle. Okay? He would take his pliers and a sewing needle and he would hold it over the stove over an open gas flame until it was red. At that point, I realized he never loved me. (laughs) Because he would take my fat little finger, which had a broken off splinter because I tried to get it myself, and having heated that needle, he would break the skin. He was good at it, but it hurt. And I would just scream, Dad, stop, stop, you're hurting me, you're hurting me. And he would just put his forearm over my forearm and hold my finger down there, and he'd say, it's going to be worse if you move, which is illogical. What is worse is you're jabbing me with a blade. And he would find the little piece of splinter and he would take the, his fingers or he'd take some tweezers and he'd pull it out and I would be healed. Sanctification hurts sometimes. Because to sterilize the needle so I didn't get further infection. One time when Alex was just a little peanut, he's our oldest, he had a splinter and he kept it hidden from me for a couple of days and we saw his finger getting infected and I'll never forget him looking at me with those big blue eyes with tears in them, crying, Daddy, Daddy, stop it, you're hurting me. And I quit. And the next day we saw the finger and it was a new color. And we had to hold his little hand down and we had to break that infection. And I realized one thing, if you let God sanctify you when he wants to, it'll hurt less than if you delay. Because it's only going to get worse. Notice what Jesus says sanctifies us. It takes out the infection and makes us sterile, allows us to be healthy and perfect and not bring infection to other things. The Word, church. Why have we spent 80 weeks studying the teachings of Jesus? Not because I didn't have any better ideas, although I didn't. We've spent 80 weeks studying the teachings of Jesus because it's our only hope. If we don't get this right, none of the rest of any scripture will make sense. Because there's not a scripture that does not point to Jesus Christ and his glory. You see, they had a mission to discharge to the world. And Jesus said, and I'm praying that you won't take them out of the world, but that you will leave them and they will be effective. He knew it was their time starting Friday afternoon, and he prayed that they would be faithful. And then he prays for us. The time has come for us. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Jesus prayed for you and me. Oh, maybe not by name in the scriptures, but definitely he was talking about us. Let's look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, church. Those 11 men and women that surrounded them did amazing work, and because of that, you and I know of Jesus Christ today. He says that, In all of them they may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus knew that the resurrection would change these men's lives. On the night that in just hours of this statement, if not moments, Jesus would go to a garden and he would pray until the middle of the morning. Probably somewhere between 2 and 3 a.m. he would be arrested and he would be taken on this tour of punishment. Horrible punishment. And in that moment, they all scattered and left him. Peter lurked in the shadows, but he wasn't bold enough to go with him. And they all lurked in the shadows. And that, yet Peter and John, John who's recording this, Peter and John who fled that night 
would in the book of Acts be arrested for preaching Jesus the resurrected Savior. And those authorities, the Bible says very clearly, Luke records in the book of Acts, that Peter and John were brought before the authorities. And when I read that, if I don't connect it to the context, I miss the point. The point was, he stood in front of the same men who condemned Jesus to death and had him brutalized. So when he saw the faces of the ones making judgment on them, when Peter and John saw this, they saw the faces who said, let the blood of Jesus be on our heads, innocent or not, we want him dead. And those two men, seeing those same faces, knowing what they were capable of, Peter and John looked at those men and said, I don't care what you think, we're going to preach Jesus even if you take our lives. And in that moment, Jesus' prayer became reality. Because by being so bold and proclaiming the truth, you and I have been shared with, and we've accepted Jesus. And if you haven't, I'd ask you why not. Verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. I'd like to try to explain that simply. That's a convoluted section of Scripture. God totally got it, but I'm slow. I read all that in and out, and I'm thinking, wow, what's he talking about? Sometimes I think weird thoughts, and sometimes I share them on Sundays. <laughs> I sometimes go by and see a sunset. Last week, I was at a football practice, and the kids were getting a, a water break, and we were sitting there, and the sun was going down, and it was a beautiful night. It was a gorgeous sunset, and... and uh, Sometimes nature captures my attention. And I wonder when I see a beautiful sunset, if every now and then there's a color that comes in a sunset that God goes, man, I'm good. <laughs> or does he look at every sunset and go, well, that's number 119 in the, in the pink hues? I don't think so. I think sometimes God looks at a sunset and he goes, man, that is awesome. Look at that color right there. And the angels go, you're good, boss. You're really, really good. Because I believe that what Jesus just prayed about was this. If one of you were an artist and painted a picture and all you used was green, nobody would want it. Because Jesus looked at those the disciples would win. And he saw all of us weird people. He saw all the shapes and sizes. He saw the diversity. Diversity in most churches kills it. But in Christ's church, not here, but the big, big, big Christ church, diversity is what makes it beautiful. An artistic drawing that's one color doesn't mean anything. An artistic drawing that has multiple colors and shades is gorgeous. We can't stop looking at it. That's the church. Now, think of all the things we don't agree on. Music, lights, volume, time, food drink, activities, education, how to spend finances, how to raise our children, which holidays to celebrate. I mean, my goodness, you could split a church. I could cause a civil war right now by saying, this is the right way on any one of those issues. And a bunch of you would write me emails and a bunch of you would stand up and leave going, I can't go to that church if that preacher believes that. So why don't we talk about those things? 
Because the best pictures have the most color, and if all of our colors are together around Jesus, the rest of that doesn't matter. It just doesn't. Some of you have been wounded in churches, and you're here today because the churches you attended got caught up in salt and pepper and forgot about meat. We're not going to do that. This is about Jesus, or it's a waste of time. So we don't have to agree on any of those things. We can live in disagreement, because as long as we get Jesus right, Jesus said, and if you love each other in spite of your diversity, he called it unity. And there's only one thing worth unifying over, and there's only one thing worth fighting for, and there's only one thing worth dying for, Jesus. Because he said to the Father, the time has come, and I'm going to do what you ask me to do, and I'm going to pray that none of us forget it. Listen to what the Hebrew author wrote. But we see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. And Jesus said, I am going to paint a picture with words from you and colors from you and sounds from you. And I'm going to put this together and I'm going to bring all of your gifts and I'm going to bring all of your abilities and I'm going to swing them all together and I'm going to unite you in ways that you can't imagine and I'm going to paint this glorious sunset of colors and imagery and when the world looks at it, they're not going to go, well, that's light and water and mixing together and creating. No, no, they're going to look at that and go, whoa, God, you rule. Because only God could take a group like us and paint such a beautiful picture. We couldn't but he can. That's what unity and love means. So that at the end, when it's all said and done, we will know that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and our Father will be revealed. Some of us here, we haven't added to the palette. We haven't brought our color. We haven't brought our gifts. We haven't brought our lives. We sit and we believe Jesus is right, but we don't live out the sanctifying sterilizing, powerful word of God that changes everything. Yes, it will divide us from the world we live in, but it will unite us in love, and love will reign, and love will win. And some of us here today have never, ever stepped in. We know who Jesus is historically, but we don't understand that it is in our obedience that he reveals himself and his Father. So I'm going to encourage you with tables around this room that are lit some of you, I'm going to ask you the question, what, are, what is your time now to do? What is it for you? What are you to do or become? Because Jesus said, the time is now. This is my moment. I ask you, what's your moment? To make a decision to, for Jesus. And that decision is not simply, I will let him forgive me of my sins. No, the decision is, I will follow him to my death. And for some of us, it's time to get back in. We're sitting around and not adding to the unity of love. We're not contributing our color to the palette so God can paint a beautiful picture of his church. And I don't want you to feel bad, but aren't we grateful we have today to change? Aren't we grateful that God doesn't strike us 
down as some example to what disobedience should receive, but instead he shows mercy and grace through Jesus Christ that we might live. I don't know what tomorrow will bring for any single one of us, but I know this. At the end of tomorrow, should I get one, Jesus will be there. And the only reason I can hold that claim is what he did on that cross was to give me eternal life so I could know his Father and live with him forever. If you want that promise and you want that hope, don't delay. Go to one of these tables. We'd love to share with you what the Bible teaches. But I need you to know, the Bible teaches absolute, unconditional surrender to the one who has all authority over everything. Let's stand together.